This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Light the fuse. Well, this is not mission difficult, Mr. Hunt. It's mission impossible. Difficult should be a walk in the park for you. Uh, it's all got to do with the rabbit's foot. Please don't make me go through you. Sir, Hunt is the living manifestation of destiny, and he has made you his mission. Kittredge, you've never seen me very upset. And you really think we can do this? We're going to do it. Welcome to Light the Fuse, the official Mission Impossible podcast. And Charles, things are getting a little spooky around these parts. Oh. Oh, are they? They are. It's Halloween. And you know what Halloween means, Charles? It means uh, things are spooky? It also means that we can play this clip. The IMF is Halloween, Alan. A bunch of grown men in rubber masks playing trick-or-treat. Oh, yes, we can. Uh, that was Angela Bassett from uh, Mission Impossible Fallout letting everybody know uh, the truth. The, the truth of the matter. <laughs> but l- don't hear it from us. Let's hear it again from Angela Bassett. The IMF is Halloween, Alan. <laughs> there we go. Yep, there it there is. We go. Hey, we're here celebrating there Halloween. There's no better way to do it. And you know what's even better than a Halloween is a Halloween with a new Mission Impossible release coming out on the same day, and we have that yes, sweet, we do. sweet Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 Blu-ray, DVD, 4K Ultra, whatever tickles your fancy. But it is available right now, and uh, we are over the moon. Yes, very excited to have that. Uh, always love to have the physical media. It's just, uh, yeah, it's wonderful. So very, very happy to... Uh, enjoy the disc and uh, enjoy Halloween with the disc. Oh, you know, somebody had a thought about Halloween. Did they? Was it Mission Impossible related by chance? I think it is, and I think it goes a little something like this. The IMF is Halloween, Alan. There we go. There we go. <laughs> there it is. The more the more Angela Bassett, the better. No lies detected. Yes, no <laughs> lies detected. Uh, And with that clip in mind, we should say that uh, the first six Mission Impossible movies are available to stream on Paramount+. Plus. We also have something special for you, which is a great new interview with someone who we had never talked to before. Yes. And had a great time chatting with. Yeah. What do you, tell us tell us all about Arthur Anderson, Charles. Well, we uh, yeah, Arthur Anderson was the uh, first assistant director on Mission Impossible 2 and co-producer on Mission Impossible 3. And he worked with John Woo many times. So we talk a lot about his relationship with John Woo, which is awesome. He had great stories to tell. And uh, yeah, I cannot wait for people to hear this interview. We get we dive into Mission Impossible 2 
this week and uh, get get big into Mission Impossible three next week. And uh, yeah, I want I also I want to make sure I give a big thank you to Michael Toy for reaching out to us. We just you know we have awesome listeners who reach out to us and say, hey, have you ever wanted to talk to so and so? And they did this on Mission Impossible three or Mission Impossible one, whatever. And you're like, oh hey, yeah, of course we'd love to talk. It's like, oh my god, yes, Arthur Anderson, this is awesome. Uh, he uh, yeah, you know we had uh, we've had we talked to one first AD before this. Uh, that was Chris Soldo, who was Brian De Palma's first AD for many years. And so now we get to talk to John Woo's first AD, and he's got great insights into John Woo's process and the way, yeah, the way he makes movies, the way he directs action. This is just great. It's awesome. You don't want to hear me talk about it. You just want to hear Arthur talk about it. So I think we should probably just uh, do the interview, right? All right, let's jump right in, and we'll be back afterwards. Well, maybe we should just start out with you telling us a little bit about yourself and your role in Mission Impossible. Um, well, I've worked on two Mission Impossibles. worked on Mission Impossible 2 that John Woo directed, and then I worked on Mission Impossible 3 that J.J. Abrams uh, directed. So Mission Impossible 2 started out, um, John called me and said, hey, uh, I, I'd already worked with him on, um, on Face Off. Uh, and uh, he said, hey, listen, they want me to do Mission Impossible 2. Would you be interested in doing it with me? He says, uh, I said, well, where's he going to shoot? And he said, Australia. So I had to think for a minute because that's a long time to be <laughs> out of the country and out of the bottom of the world where it's, you know, 18 hours time difference. But I talked to my wife. She said, yeah, go ahead and do it. So um, uh, the way I work with John is we start out with the script. We tear it apart. We tear all the action out of it because for John – the action is a character in the film. It's the invisible character that uh, not only helps propel the plot, but as the characters develop their arc, it creates barriers for them. Um, it causes them to make have to make decisions on uh, changing the way their actions work. So it's the unseen character that drives the the story, uh, the plot, and the characterization. So um, what we do is we tear all the action out of the script. And then we decide what action we want to put in the script to cause these changes in the plot and in the characters and in the characters arc over the course of the film. So he and I sit out the stunt coordinator or the second unit director and we go through each scene and then we figure out, well, when you do, do a car chase, he'll say, first of all, I want to do something that's never been done before. OK, so you rent every movie action car chase movie there is. You try to come up with, with uh, designs like that, something that would fit the character and enhance the action of the movie uh so we'll send out with toy cars uh we'll bring in a storyboard artist we'll storyboard that and then i'll take that and i'll write that into script form send it to the writer and then he'll incorporate that into the script so um that's that's kind of our mo for the way we've worked on pictures uh except for face off we didn't have to do that that script was complete the action was great we storyboarded we went from there uh, but in mission two that's the way we approached it so um we did that, developed that, went to Australia, and then the day the the budget got really high on it because it was a big action film. There were a lot of moving parts, a lot of components to it. Uh, so the studio came down the week before we started filming. We're trying to work out the budget issues, and one of the results of that was at the uh, on the Friday before we started shooting, they they threw out the ending of the movie because they felt it was too big. <laughs> so. So uh, we went, oh, boy, this is going to be great. So for the rest of the movie, we spent every weekend reconceiving the ending, 
sitting down and figure out what that cool action was going to be. And it was it was actually a blessing in disguise because the ending we came up with was much better than the ending that uh, we had started out with. Um, but it required working every weekend, uh, redesigning the action, rewriting the script, finding locations. Um, and I don't know if you remember at the end of the movie where they're doing the the motorcycle joust where the two motorcycles come and Tom and do great go up in the air and they go up against oh, each yeah. other. How, how could we forget the motorcycle joust? Oh, well, yeah. I'll, I'll, tell you I'll, I'll tell you a quick story about that. So one of these weekends, we're all exhausted. We're working 14 hours a day. So in the weekend, one Saturday, we're out. We're trying to figure out uh, what we're going to do. There's this cool cliff area that looked out over the ocean. And John says, you know, I've always liked the, the ending to be like two nights jousting. He said, so um, I'd like them to take the two motorcycles and, and come together and, and joust like that. And then we kind of moved on. And Brian came over to me and says, how are we going to figure, Brian Smurfs is done, how are we going to figure that out? I said, what do you mean? He said, the two motorcycles jousting. I said, I, I think he was just kidding. I don't think he really wanted to do that. I mean, I think it was just, you know. <laughs> and so I go to John. That's, that's, that's the stunt coordinator trying to figure out how he's going to yeah, do that. Right? Yeah, I said, oh, come on, come on, Brian. He was just kidding. So I walk over. To John and said, hey, John, you were just kidding about the two motorcycles and the jousting and all that, right? And he says, he said, no, I, I really want to do that. And I said, well, John, two motorcycles coming at each other, two guys jumping off the mo- – they hit each other. They're going to die instantly, just the, the, the combined G-force of two approaching forces. He puts his hand on me and says, uh, it's a movie. You'll figure it out. <laughs> and, and he was right. You know, when you totally see it in the film, you believe that it could happen. They run in each other. They fall down off the cliff and they fight. But we're doing that every weekend. That was a giant rig because that's a rig. The two motorcycles had to be mounted on. The two motorcycles had to come at each other. And at some point they had to go up in the air like this. And then uh, the two actors had to go off of the rigs. So there was a giant cable connected to construction cranes. So there was, a rig that had to lift them up off the motorcycles. And then there were just cinder rigs with two cables that came off the back of them to slow them down enough. So literally they would just stop inches from each other without actually impacting. I mean, it was, it was a huge technical rig to figure out and the safety factors and how is this going to work? And can we really stop them that close apart? And if what happens if one of the cables snaps? Um, so it took during, while we're shooting the film, we're building these rigs, we're doing testing and, and it worked. I mean, it, was, it ended up being a, a great sequence, but it was very challenging because we were prepping that whole ending of the movie, the motorcycle chase, that part, the fight on the cliff, uh, that was all prepped uh, while we were shooting. So it made it uh, a little bit challenged, but we had a great team of people and uh, who'd worked together uh, before. So we, you know, we did it and it, and it, and it came out great. And it was, it, it you know, the movie grossed over $550 million. So it was a big success. So all, all that hard work uh, paid off. Yeah. Wow. There's a lot to talk about in that, in that finale. I, w- I want to talk about the knife, the knife in the eye moment. Oh my gosh. Can you, can you tell us about that? Yeah. So, <laughs> cause, cause that knife gets, it tickles Tom Cruise's eyelashes. We did that practically. Okay. And the reason why we did it practically, <clears throat> we we're going to do it visual effects on stage. But we showed up at this cliff one day, and the wind was blowing 70 miles an hour. There was no way we could get on the rigs. We could do fights on the beach. You could stand over the cliff, and the wind was blowing so strong it would hold, hold your body back. So he said, well, there's nothing, nothing you know, that we can shoot. And um, it was either John or Tom said, hey, what about the, you know, the knife over the eye gag? I said, well, we're going to do that as visual effects back at the studio. And he said, wasn't there a way we can rig it to do it here? I said, oh, my gosh. I said, well, so I talked to 
Brian, the stunt coordinator, said, well, we could build an A-frame swing set. We could put a cable with a dead man on the knife, and then it could be right over him, so it would never go lower uh, than the knife could be held. So wait, so when you're saying that, that's like a, for because a lot of people, these these terms are going flying by fast. You're talking about yeah. like a, kind of like, like a swing set type? Yeah. So Like, yeah. like structure that then is then going to have a wire hanging down from yeah, it? Yeah, it's exactly like a swing set. And then you've got a cable <laughs> uh, tied off to that, and then that's tied off to the back of the the handle of the knife and then tom got down on the ground and then we had the snut double get on top of him take that knife and drive it right down into his eye i mean literally and it it that was all practical and the knife you saw it i mean it, the the edge of the blade was going right across his eyebrows and uh you know I didn't sleep well that night. <laughs> it was <yeah. laughs> something you, you know, nowadays you definitely do that as a visual effect. Um, but, you know, Tom and John wanted to do it practically and, and it, it all worked out. But it was, you know, uh, you, ha you have to be very, you have to take every safety precaution you can make it as, uh, as safe as possible. So, you know, you don't get injured. And so we had Tom, uh, Tom's head locked down really well. There's no way the knife could go further. But, you know, it was a little nerve wracking doing that. I think that this is the one franchise where they still would be insisting on trying to do that practically today, even still. But so was it Doray Scott? Was he the one who was, or was it a stunt person who was holding the knife? I was a stunt person over the top. Yeah. Of I can't that. imagine yeah. that an actor would ever want to be the one holding the knife uh, over Tom Cruise's no, eyeball. No, no. <laughs> you want to take every safety precaution possible. But, uh, but, you know, one thing about John is he's a, really big proponent of trying to do everything practically that you possibly can. There's a, there's a realism and a synergy in that, that, you know, you watch some of the movies now with the visual effects and, and, and listen, they're great. They do a great job, but you can just tell it. It's so outrageous. You know, it's like I was talking to John about the motorcycle joust. That, that could never happen, but you could feasibly think that that could happen. But you look at some of the action movies now and some of the car stunts and things like that, you know, they're all CG. Um, and it just, for me, it takes something away from movie. I like, I like practical physical effects and that's what John's always tried to design into his movie. If, if there's, he understands sometimes you have to use visual effects, but if you can, if there's any way you can do it practically, he really prefers to do it practically. Can you talk about what the original climax was for two? I don't know if we've heard about what that original <laughs> plan was. It was great. I mean, it was still a big chase in this motorcycle chase, but it didn't, it didn't have the really outstanding elements and the ramped up action that we had with the big joust and all that. So it was very similar in ter terms of the context. I mean, it was a great ending. Nothing to take away from that, but it's funny. The one great thing about we were shooting the movie and developing this with Tom and John is we wanted to do something that, that hadn't been seen before that nobody had done. And it really gave a great climax. And so the advantage of redoing that, over the course of the film, once we'd gotten everything and we'd gotten into the, the plot and the shooting, it really enables us to come up with the, the ending we came up with. So you prefer this new ending? Oh, yes, definitely. Yes. Okay, okay. Yeah, the other funny thing was the same Friday night that this decision was made to throw out the original ending, there was a huge hailstorm. I mean, softball-sized hail. It, it totaled my rental car, and it did a billion dollars worth of damage all over the city. Wow. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I said... As a studio, I said, well, I think this is a good omen. We're starting off with good action right before we start shooting. We just destroyed the entire city with a giant, <laughs> a giant storm. <laughs> yeah. We'll be 
back with more from Arthur Anderson after the break. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Check out our new NBA show, Beyond the Arc, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network, where you can find me, John Gonzalez, NBA insider Bill Ryder, and Ashley Nicole Moss, five days a week talking all things NBA. Whether you're looking for insightful discussions, upbeat commentary, breaking news, interviews, or coverage of all the biggest stories in the NBA, our new show is the place to be five days a week. Download and follow Beyond the Arc on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. There's a part in the climax where Tom Cruise is on the motorcycle and then he kind of jumps off of it and and his feet it, like slide along the yeah. ground. Yeah. How, so how did you uh how did that how did you do that one? Yeah, he, I mean he did that. It, here's the thing about Tom. He's one of the most physically fit actors I've ever worked with. Uh, I just say a quick story when uh you know we went over, had to go over to his house a bunch of times for meetings about the action stuff and the and the first time I met him, we were in a parking lot and he's standing on the sidewalk and we we're talking to him. He said, you know, I'd like to do as many of this stuff as I possibly can. I said, well, you know, it's, it's really going to be physically demanding. I mean, you're going to have to be in really good shape. He says, watch this. And he jumped off the sidewalk and did a full forward flip and landed in a parking lot. And I said, okay, you're good. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, wow. The, guy, the, guy, the guy's in incredible shape. I mean, there's very few actors in Hollywood I trust to do uh, the stunts that he's done uh, because he's physically and and mentally capable and disciplined about doing the stunts he does. He doesn't take anything. He doesn't go into anything uh, improvisationally. You know, he works hard. He understands what's involved. He studies it and, and is as good as any stuntman or stunt double that you could get to do with him. He's, he's just very talented and skilled that way. So that, that that was another great element is that you do a lot of coverage in these movies and Tom's doing them all. So you don't have to worry about face replacement or, okay, we'll do this with the double. Now we'll have to do a closer shot on the actor on the motorcycle doing this. You know, uh, Tom did all that. So when he was doing the skid off the bike, uh, the bike had a, a tow rig attached to the front of it that you couldn't see. And then he was on the bike so that it was, the bike was stable and then he could, he then had on these specially designed boots that he could jump off the bike and he could skid alongside of it. But he did, he did all that and then jump back on the bike. He was just skidding on actual road. Yes. Then? Yeah. It was a military base that we were able to close off these roads on. So we had complete control of the roads. So, wow. yeah, it was, it was pretty outstanding. How fast do you think you were going for that one? I don't know. We're doing about 40, somewhere around that. It, it was 22 years ago. Kind of hard to remember, but <laughs> yeah, we're, it, we were going at a pretty good, it was a pretty good clip. Yeah. <laughs> and he's a great motorcycle rider too, you know, but that's one of the things you wouldn't want to do. You wouldn't want to do freestyle because it is, you know, little bumps in the road and stuff could, uh, could make it a bad day, bad day for you. Right. Yeah. Could you compare the complexity of the boat chase finale of face off to the motorcycle jousting finale of mission impossible Two? 
just in terms of complexity and I would say that the motorcycle jousting was more complex because wow yeah I mean listen not to think they went to boat chase the boat chase was really complicated I mean we had to build those boats those are specially built boats so they could smash into each other I'll just tell you a quick story about face off is that's the first show I worked with John and Barry Osborne, the producer brought me and uh, Marty Ewing was a production manager and uh, they were looking for an AD to work with John. He brought me an interview with him and we decided uh, early on the boat chase was a big component uh, of the finale. And we decided that the best thing to do was shoot the boat chase in pre-production before we actually started shooting with the stunt doubles because it was so complex. So Billy Burton was the second unit director. Um, so while we were prepping to get ready to shoot first unit, uh, we put together uh, storyboarded the entire sequence and Billy went out and shot for two weeks, all the boat chase stuff. And then near the end of the movie, it was like in November, we took John and, and Nicholas Cage, John Travolta and Nicholas Cage out to Long Beach Harbor. And we had two units going and then we inserted them into each part of the boat chase and then shot the finale on the beach. And I'll tell you, the great thing about doing that was the studio was really nervous about how big the movie was. So John took the second unit stuff. And John, the great thing about that, too, is John was able to go out to work with Billy while he was shooting the boat chase and see it and put his input in. And so the two of them worked closely together on uh, on shooting the boat chase. But what enabled John to do was be able to take the all that footage of the boat chase. He cut the entire sequence together. So before. Before we just after we started shooting, he showed it to the studio and the studio was blown away. They couldn't believe how good it was. And so it took a lot of pressure off of us on having the studio worried about, you know, are we going to stay on schedule? How's the movie going to come out? And they had something they could get the distributors excited about because it was, a, you know, it was a, it was a great ending uh, to a movie. So it's, each film is different. And um you have to find out a way, the best way you think it's it's going to help you to take uh, to get the film accomplished on time, on budget, you know, and trying to stay inside your budget box. And you have to come up with creative ways uh, to do that. So that was that was that was our solution for uh, accomplishing that on face off. But, yeah, I mean, it was a really complicated sequence. Wow. All the elements of that things have been done before. We did have to create some new boat rigs and things to be able to shoot the app. We put the fake boats on top of pontoon boats and stuff like that. But the, the motorcycle chase was just, com- it, it was complicated because it was, you know, a rig with these motorcycles, you're, you know, Tom's going to be on his motorcycle. He's going to go up. You got to make sure that, you know, he's able to stop across from the other stunt double and, and you, you're trying to make it as safe as possible. But it, it was, it was super complicated because a rig like that had never been done before. Wow. What uh, what about the f- the front wheelie that he does earlier in the climax when the motorcycle stuff just starts? There's a part where I don't know if you remember he does a f- like a front wheelie where like the the, the motorcycle he like sort of breaks and the motorcycle goes onto the front wheel as a car passes by and then he like swings around and yeah and shoots it. How, how do you do? How, did, how, is that how, how do you do that? He, uh, <laughs> you could just explain how movies are made generally to Charles yeah. first and then go well, into yeah. It's funny that we had this great motorcycle guy who was actually able to take the motorcycle and put it and actually do a wheelie for the car to go underneath. Wow! And then Tom actually did the skid around shooting back at the car uh, for that. But all that was done uh, uh, practically, except that we, we had a rig for Tom 
uh, to be on to be on that rig that would slide around that he could shoot back at the car uh, that that was chasing him. Yeah, we had a lot of different specialty rigs uh, we built for that uh, motorcycle chase. It was really complicated. It took a lot of testing, and it made the shooting go faster. When you have time to, to build rigs and test them and actually um, uh, shoot a lot of that on camera, like um, on the weekends and stuff for a lot of the fight things, the uh, stunt quarter would take the stunt team out, and we'd go out uh, into a location, and we would uh, rehearse and shoot video of the action sequences. And then uh, they would cut that together and then we could show John because uh, John would come with concept, what he wanted for the fight. Uh, they'd put together uh, the sequence and then uh, we'd videotape that, edit it. And then we'd be able to show John a menu of the different, different actions that were capable in the fight. And then he would take those and say, okay, let's do this here. Let's put this here. Let's do this and, um, and put it together. So that's a real time saving device. So that when you get on the set, you know exactly the shots you're going to shoot. And the, the great thing, having videotaped a lot of those, is that we knew exactly the cool angles that we're going to be able to shoot and, and how to actuate them quickly and efficiently. Right. I was just going to ask if, if, as a first AD, there were multiple cameras running in terms of, like, so many of these shots go from normal 24 frames to slow motion back again. Were there multiple cameras going? Were these shot? Did did John know? Okay, that shot where he spins around is going to be slow motion. We're just capturing it, you know, at a accelerated frame rate. How did that work? John will use every camera you have on the truck on every set. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> some will be normal speed. Uh, some will be set for high speed. But we'd usually have at least two, if not three or four cameras going. And if you have a big sequence, we would use, up, uh, we'd bring in extra cameras. You use seven or eight cameras to get all the angles. Um, but listen, John's a master of moving the audience through the movie with the camera. You know, director's job is to direct the audience's attention. And he always does that by number one, the action is invisible character. Number two, he uses the camera to move uh, the audience through the film very subtly. Right. And the great thing about digital now, I miss the smell of celluloid in the morning, but um, <laughs> great thing about digital now is you can run a camera at 90, 120 frames, and then you can use a slow mode and then you can always drop it back to normal frame rate. Well, a lot of these movies we did, you couldn't do that. You, you know, if you want to do something super high speed, you'd have the ultrasonic camera to go a thousand frames. I mean, it was, you know, it was a big deal to do that because thing burned up a lot of film very quickly and everything had to go go right like that but i listen i do miss shooting with film uh, i think there's a there's a quality to film and and also miss shooting with with arcs i don't know if you guys from the old school we used to use these giant arcs it was two pieces of carbon coming together and it made made the light and it was a it was a full spectrum light i, I call it the golden light it was really good and uh and they, you know, you don't use those things. It's even hard to find the carbon. I think they still make it in China. But there's some of the there's some things about celluloid and film that uh, you know I really miss. And these films are done on film, so they have a special place in my heart because I uh, they just look they look great. We had great yeah. cinematographers. You know, Jeffrey Kimball was the DP on Mission Impossible. To Dan Mandel was the DP on uh, Mission Three, and we, you know we we shot that uh, on film, and they were just both experts in their field, you know, and it was so much fun uh, working with both of them. 
Can you talk about Jeffrey Kimball? Because he came in later, right? He had to replace another DP yeah. who had to leave the project, right? And so he came on and then that was he had worked with Tony Scott before, right? So I think right. that's maybe how, how Tom Cruise and he worked with Tom. had yeah. known him. Yeah. So and then after this, he and John Woo continued to work together, right? So they must right. have had a good time. Yeah. So can you talk about that working relationship between Kimball and Wu? Yeah, Jeffrey did. Uh, he came in and took over Mission Two. Then we did Wind Talkers right after that, and then we did we did Paycheck. Um, Jeffrey's a great. He's a great guy. Yeah, he worked with Tony Scott uh, a bunch, and um, it's funny. We did a BMW short film uh, when they were introducing the um, yes the Z4. Jeffrey was with us on that, and and, and we, we love those. We love those BMW yeah, shorts. We worked with Tony on that. Uh, and uh, Tony is a great guy. I, I miss him. And you did the you did the John Woo one as well, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, I I, I did that one. The the BMW. We we actually got a call from Tony uh, and said, "Hey, we lost a director. We're ten calendar days out from shooting this short." He called Terrence Chang, uh, John's producer at the time, and said, "Hey, can you guys do this?" So he sent me the script. I broke it down. I said, "Well, yeah," but I said we have to start tomorrow. <laughs> so so <laughs> so we did. 10 days. We created all that act. That was so much fun work with John. Uh, I don't know if we want to get into a car story on, on that about this, but if you want to talk about that, that was a great car story in that, or destroyed an $800,000 handmade prototype. <laughs> the, the agency knew we were going to do that, but it was still funny watching them after we destroyed it. <laughs> wow. But, but Jeffrey, get back to Jeffrey. Uh, he was a great guy. Listen, talented filmmaker, really knows his stuff. Um, came into mission to, just jumped right in. He knew the MO having worked with Tony and stuff and, and John, and they just, they just uh, bonded together really well. And we, we, and we had a great time. Listen, he really knew. And we were shooting anamorphic anamorphic is a lot different than shooting standard. I mean, you have to pump in a lot more light because of the, you know, the, your depth of field and the lenses you're using. And you really have to know what you're doing in, in anamorphic. And, and Jeffrey did, and he did, he did a, a great job. It's always fun, fun working with Jeffrey. It makes a lot of sense that Jeffrey, coming from Tony Scott, who also uses all kinds of cameras and every you know yeah. different speeds, shooting different speeds at the same time, it makes sense that he would seamlessly move into the John Woo territory just fine. And he's just a great human <laughs> being. He's fun to work with, you know. And I, I guess that's the the blessing about all the films I've I've done with different people. I've, I've always been blessed. I've had great crews because listen, you work on a movie, it's like a crew getting on a nuclear submarine. You go underwater. For six months, you know, you're away from your family. So it's all about the people you're working with. People are going through divorces and deaths and stuff like that. So you really get to be close with people. Right. You know, and I keep, keep in touch with a lot of these people as I can, uh, you know, and they just, they become like extended family. And even if you haven't seen them in four or five years, the next time you see them, you know, it's just like you've been together all that time. It's, it's, yeah. So I've been, I've been blessed that I've worked with great people and not just good filmmakers, but generally good human beings, fun to work with. back with more from Arthur Anderson after the break. Rise and shine football fans start your day the right way with Morning Footy, a podcast that covers every aspect of the global game, headlines, match previews, analysis, interviews, culture, fashion and plenty of banter. 
Join as we track the thrills and spills of Europe's biggest title races, the business end of the Champions League season, a summer packed with international competitions, MLS, NWSL, and much more. Subscribe to Morning Footy. The trades had, you know, we did a making of episode a few years ago about MI2, and we read in the trades about, you know, right before production started on MI2, supposedly, according to them, like, the movie had to, like, shut down and kind of reset to get the budget right or something. Or, like, you know, there's also, like, Steve Zahn was on the project early on, and so our assumption has always been, like, there, like you had to kind of simplify right before, but I don't know how true that is. I'm curious if you can shed any light on... If that happened, was there was there kind of a, a rethink a few a few weeks before the shoot started? On mission two, there wasn't. We didn't. Uh, that might have been before I got involved. When I got involved, I mean, it, it was ready to go. You know, we started tearing the action part, storyboarding, budgeting. So we never shut down before before we started. That that might have been in previous incarnations of it i know you know it had been in development for a while but i don't i don't know anything about the prior development on it do you know anything about steve zahn being cast or what his role was going to be no uh -uh. okay i mean i'd heard some things prior but by the time i got involved in the project it was you know all hands on deck let's make the movie yeah right well there is this other component which we're obsessed with which is this mythical john woo cut before Stuart Bayard was brought in. And I'm assuming, Arthur, that maybe you have seen that cut and could maybe illuminate what that was like. You know, I, I hadn't because I was working on the project and I got, I got called in when Stuart had come in. We needed a, a ton of inserts. And so they called me uh, to come in and, and direct the insert unit. So I, I went over to Howard Anderson's and I had a list of like, 40 inserts or something like that so they were in the editing room uh cutting i hadn't i hadn't seen the first cut of it um because i was working on something else but uh, they asked me to come in and direct the insert you know so i came in and did the inserts got all the inserts done for them so i i didn't see any cuts prior to john having finished the the final cut of the film what was what was the vibe with john i guess during this period because i don't to me, Face Off feels more like a true sort of John Woo mm-hmm. kind of masterpiece. This feels like him obviously coming into a new franchise, working with new collaborators. But was he was he miffed during this process, or was it just sort of the order of the day? Listen, it was a tough project. I mean, we were in Australia for a long time, and there are a lot of moving parts involved in it. And like you say, it is a franchise, so there's certain things you have to look at when you're looking at it. And listen. Not for nothing. Tom's made this franchise into great success because he understands action filmmaking, right? He always came up with a good story, whether it was with John or or JJ. Um, his thing is always to entertain the audience, make them feel fulfilled. So when you come out of a Mission Impossible movie, you want to feel like, hey, that was money well spent. You know what? I might want to watch that again. You know, and he's delivered on you know Maverick. You know the new Top Gun movie. So um, he's mastered that franchise. And listen, everybody's always going to have varying ideas in the creative process about what they think should be the ultimate result of it. So um, 
I wouldn't say anybody was got missed. Listen, there were times where, you know, there'd be different points of view about how something should be shot or edited. But at the end of the day, we all came together. We figured out how to do it and, you know, and did the best we could to make that happen, you know. And that's if, on any film that happens. There's always going to be right. disagreements, different points of view. And then it's all about, you know, hey, listen, we're here to service the project and ultimately entertain the audience. So we're not curing cancer here, but we do want to entertain people and, uh, you know, make people come out of the theater feeling like they've gotten their money's worth out of what they just paid for. It's so expensive to go to the theater. Now I think you're, you know, paying a second mortgage on your house. So, yeah. So was, do you think you feel like John was happy with the movie? Yeah. Yeah. I think he was, uh, you know, and it, uh, and it, like I said, I, the proof of concept was it, it did so well, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, clearly. We're back. I feel like this episode is really just for Ben David Grubinski's enjoyment. He is the ultimate <laughs> Mission Impossible 2 super fan, and we have tried to deliver. Yes, I think we did. I think Arthur yeah. did. Arthur delivered. There were some great things in this episode, in this interview. I mean, I just I just love talking to him. I thought hearing about John Woo's process with action and how it informs character, all, all that stuff was fascinating. And hearing that they threw out the ending for MI2 because it was too big. And that he said that they ended up having a better ending than what it was. But I'm very curious to know what that bigger ending was. So if anyone's got that script out there, we'd love to get our dirty little hands on it. Send it on over to HQ. <laughs> uh, also, of course, amazing to hear about that swing set-like rig they used to pull off the knife in the eye moment. Always love any kind of uh, insight into that because I love that knife in the eye thing. You say knife in the eye in almost every episode, even when we're not <laughs> even talking about Mission Impossible 2. I say it to people and they have no idea what I'm talking about. It's great. Uh, <laughs> and just and hearing about all the stunts that Cruz did and, and the, you know, sliding his feet on the ground while he was on the motorcycle, all that crazy stuff. And, and of course, lovely to hear stories about Face Off. We obviously love that movie. I think it's John Woo's best American film. Uh, would you agree? I would uh, agree, but he, I mean, this new one looks pretty great. He's got a new movie yeah, coming out, so, yes. you know. Very excited about that. Yeah. Um, and now this is the second person we've heard say that Wu was happy with MI2. I believe the other was supervising sound editor Mark Stockinger. Um, I think it was him. It was either him or it was Kevin Cavanaugh, the art director, but I'm pretty sure it was someone involved in post. So I think it was Mark Stockinger. But like, you know, there's a lot of talk of the release, you know, Hashtag release the woo cut, and there's a long well, yeah, Charles. John there's woo a lot of talk from us. Yeah, I know, that, that, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're the ones fueling the talk, yes, but yes, yes. I'm just saying, you know, like it might be uh, a whole lot of baloney. Like, it sounds like woo is happy with the movie. I, we go, we got to talk to John Woo directly, we got to get him on the show, so we'll find out when that happens, and we're going to will that into existence. And, uh, of course, come back next week. We jump into MI3 a bunch and talk about working with J.J. Abrams. Uh, plus, we get a little bit more of MI2 and Face Off. So that's good stuff. You don't want to miss. You want to come back for that next week for sure. And uh, what do we want to remind people of anything, Drew, maybe? Yeah, if I could remind. Well, first of all, Charles, I want to remind everyone. I want to remind you, actually, in particular, that Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 is out now on digital, 4K, Ultra HD disc, Blu-ray, and DVD right this instant. Excellent. Can you even believe that? I can. Because you know why? It's Halloween. And you know what the IMF is? 
Uh, I don't know, but I think I know somebody who does. Roll it again. The IMF is Halloween, Alan. <laughs> and, yeah. I mean, there it is. Thank God. Thank, thank you. God she reminds us. Thank you yes. to Erica Sloan. Thank you. Thank you to Angela Bassett, incomparable Angela Bassett, for letting us always know the truth about Halloween. <laughs> Uh, I also want to remind everybody that you can catch brand new episodes of Light the Fuse, the official Mission Impossible podcast, every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. If you could do us a favor and like, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you're listening to the podcast, that would be a huge help to us. And, you know, as Charles said, come back next week for even more great uh, anecdotes from Mission Impossible 3. And follow us on social media at Light the Fuse Pod on Twitter and Instagram and where else? We have a TikTok now, Charles. We do, we are on TikTok. Beware. We're we're trying to reach the young kids out there on TikTok. Yes. So follow us there if that's your social media of choice. And that's that's Light the Fuse Pod as well. Yes. Okay. Light the Fuse Great. Pod. And if you want to follow the main mission accounts, that is Mission Film on Twitter and Mission Impossible on Instagram. So, yeah, we'll be back next week with some more just great Arthur stories, and we can't wait for you to hear them. So why don't we let Erica Sloan close out the show, Charles? What do you say? I think, One more time? I think there's no better way to end this episode. Go ahead. Go ahead, Erica. All right. Here we go. <laughs> the IMF is Halloween, Alan. Light the Fuse, the official Mission Impossible podcast, is produced by Charles Hood. That's me and Drew Taylor. Our supervising producer is Alexandra August. This episode was edited by Luke Burson with music by Kevin Blumenfeld. Original Mission Impossible themes by Lalo Schifrin. This podcast is a production of Paramount Pictures. All rights are reserved. This message will self-destruct in five seconds. 